I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. This past November 1st, South Texas College hosted the 7th Annual Binational Innovation Conference at the Technology Campus in McAllen. Experts from both sides of the border at the 2019 Innovation Conference analyzed changes in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the impact of those changes, and ideas on how to best prepare for those anticipated changes in the USMCA. In this podcast, the Senior Vice President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, Blake Hastings discussed the economic outlook for the Rio Grande Valley. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so this is my third year to come and speak with you all. And, uh, either that means I'm doing something right or um, you guys uh, aren't bored with me yet. <laughs> uh, no, with all kidding aside, I, I really do enjoy coming back to South Texas College because I often, when I'm talking to my peers at the Dallas Fed and we're talking about workforce development and education, which are linchpins to the success of the Texas economy, I often point to this institution as one of the exemplars of what it means to do modern day workforce development. Uh, the partnerships that you all have with the private sector, specifically in the manufacturing space, and now as you're moving in more and more uh, uh, to the, to the uh, public safety realm, which I learned a little bit about this morning. Um, it's truly a model for how other <clears throat> community colleges around the state of Texas and for that matter around the country could and should look at, at how they develop the talent for tomorrow. Um, I think the work that, that Mr. Barber just outlined uh, is, is truly uh, leading edge in terms of those kinds of partnerships you see. I, I can't think of any institution uh, anywhere in Texas that is doing the level of sophistication, training, certification, and partnership uh, with, with the manufacturing sector like you're doing. And to do it with technology, uh, I also applaud because one of the things you'll hear me talk about today is every student graduating from your, uni from your college today will have his or her job disrupted by technology at least five or six times during their careers. That's a, that's a, a piece of research we've done at the Dallas Fed. And so institutions like South Texas College are gonna be critical to not only providing the, the, the new workforce uh, uh, the younger folks coming into the workforce for business and industry like you're doing today, but you're going to have to be at the point of the sphere in keeping their skills up to date and modernize as technology continues to innovate and disrupt uh, uh, the way we do things. Um, so I applaud you for all of that great work. So what I'd like to do for you today <clears throat> is just talk to you quickly. I think most of you may be familiar with the Federal Reserve, but there may be a few things about us you don't know. We are truly a federal system, but we are not government. We are actually separate within government. Uh, Congress chartered us, but we are independent uh, because we do several things that you as American citizens uh, don't want uh, being politicized. Uh, um, and those are things like monetary policy, running the payment system of the United States, uh, and supervising and regulating our financial institutions. Those are things that you don't want political interference in. You want those things to be done for the best interest of, of the American people uh, and the economy more, more broadly. Uh, my colleague Eduardo and I uh, work in the San Antonio branch office for the Dallas Fed, which is the 11th district of the Federal Reserve System. You can see where the other 11 districts are at and located. Um, this is truly a decentralized approach to central banking. Um, we are not headquartered in, 
in uh, New York or Washington, uh, we're really representative of the entire nation. Um, we do have a board of governors in Washington that are politically appointed, uh, but the 12 presidents representing each of these 12 reserve banks can, together with those seven governors make our nation's monetary policy. So there's a blend of sort of public-private uh, representation here. The boards of directors of these, of these 12 reserve banks select our presidents. Uh, they are not political appointees. They are businesswomen, uh, civic leaders, and, and men from around uh, the 11th district, uh, and likewise the other 11th districts. Now you'll notice this map is Northeastern-centric. Uh, there's a simple reason for that. This map was drawn in 1913 by Congress. Um, and this is where everybody lived in 1913 in our country. Obviously that's changed as we've moved more southerly and westerly uh, in, in our nation, but it was an act of Congress that drew this map, and similarly it would take an act of Congress to redraw this map, and I wish you all the luck in doing that, <clears throat> especially in today's climate. Um, to bring it home a little bit, um, in the San Antonio branch office, um, we have a board of directors as well that help us keep tabs on what's happening in the regional economy here in Central and South Texas. Um, these are the folks that currently occupy that board. We actually had Dr. Marie Mora from UT Rio Grande Valley on our board up until just a couple of months ago. Uh, however, she has relocated to Missouri. She's uh, taken up a, a, a provost position at a university in, in uh, Missouri, and so she's rolled off and we're in the process of replacing uh, Marie as we speak, but we still have Robert Lozano, uh, who is a Dairy Queen franchisee uh, based here in McAllen. Uh, he does a great job. He's also on the EDC board here in, in McAllen, is very involved in the community, and does a great job of keeping us posted on what's happening in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, as well as uh, Al Jones from Corpus Christi, Jesus uh, Garza from, from uh, Austin, Charlie Amato, Brad Weaver, and, and Paula Gold Williams from, from San Antonio, representing industries ranging from from real estate development to energy to uh, obviously uh, restaurant uh, and, and, and retail to banking to uh, energy, uh, the public utility in, in San Antonio to entertainment. Uh, we really have a great representation of folks from around Central and South Texas and we, we continue to do that. But multiply that by all these offices are in the way, and you see all the gray dots represent branch offices like the one that Eduardo and I work for in, in San Antonio. Uh, the, the colored dots here are home offices uh, and you can see that we have a, an army of business uh, leaders and civic leaders from around the country that are meeting with us on a regular basis to help us understand what's happening in real time in the economy. This is truly the partnership between what we call ourselves the public sector and the private sector. Those board members uh, as well as advisory councils that we meet with on a regular basis, roundtables that we do. Uh, we just did a roundtable not too long ago here in uh, uh, the Valley with uh, folks from the manufacturing sector, from the trade sector, uh, to understand what the dynamics were going on in, in the trade space, because we know that's such a vital importance to, to the Texas economy. So we're constantly listening and learning from business people about what happens. So if you learn nothing else from my presentation today, take away the fact that the Federal Reserve, your nation's central bank, doesn't do what it does without the help of the private sector helping inform us, whether it be on monetary policy and what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the payment space, how money is being traded hands and the evolution of technology there, or whether how we regulate and supervise financial institutions, what effect that has on you and I as consumers, as borrowers, the businesses that, that, that uh, banks also lend to as well. So 
all of that is, is how the Federal Reserve works, and, and it's a true uh, a strength, if you will, of, of how ours works, and a fairly unique model amongst central banks around the world. You'll find very few who are like this. Banco de Mexico comes close uh, with their regional offices as well. So let me talk now and pivot and talk about the economy. So we are a little bit in what the Federal Reserve might call a Goldilocks position in that we're really hitting on our dual mandate from a monetary policy perspective of maximum employment and stable prices. We have a target rate for inflation of 2%, and guess what? Inflation is at 2%. We are literally spot on right now with our target for inflation. We have been, for the last eight or nine years, tra trailing below that target. We were having a rough time getting inflation up to 2%. It was uh, closer to 1.6, 1.7% for for five or six years. And uh, finally, we've started to be able to bring that back up to, to closer to our, our target range. From an employment perspective, it's hard to argue that we're not at a position of full employment in our country today. Our unemployment rate right now is at 3.5%. Um, most economic models suggest that's below the natural rate of unemployment, meaning that we're actually running a little hot in the labor markets, a little tight, if you will. And that's certainly supported by the anecdotes we hear from business leaders here in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, where we hear that it's difficult for logistics companies, for example, to find forklift drivers, uh, for customs brokers to find people to do the work they're doing, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we're hearing this in all skill sets, not just in higher skills, uh, which has been a challenge for years. We're hearing it even in some of the, the lower skill positions. Even restaurants and hotels are having a rough time finding workforce. Uh, so that tells us we're doing pretty well on that mandate as, as well. Um, that being said, there are uh, reasons to worry. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this because at the central bank, we're paid to worry. That's what we do for a living is we worry. We worry about the banking system. We worry about the economy. So we're always sort of looking on the periphery for what are those signals out there that might suggest things may not be as rosy as these numbers at the top of this chart might suggest. And certainly we've seen a lot of uncertainty. We've seen a lot of uncertainty manifested in the financial markets, a lot of volatility. And when we talk about financial markets, we're not talking just about the stock markets and equity markets. We're talking about the credit markets, the bond markets. We've seen a lot of volatility there. We've seen a lot of pushing down on interest rates, which suggests that there's concern and fear perhaps out there, some uncertainty. And we know where some of that uncertainty is coming from. And talking to business leaders, trade uncertainty has been the biggest issue uh, not only here in Texas, but across the entire country. Um, I don't have to tell people in McAllen, Texas, how important trade is. Um, and, and anything that disrupts or potentially disrupts that trade uh, could be, particularly on your economy in McAllen, but more broadly on the state of Texas, which is the largest exporting state in the United States. So any kind of trade disruption that occurs uh, for our nation is going to have the biggest effect on the state of Texas. Um, and of course, um, just sort of more broadly, the industrial and manufacturing sector. And we've seen a slowdown in the manufacturing sector as a result of that. Some of the tariffs have started to take a bite and have started to change manufacturers' outlook and some of their behaviors in terms of growing their businesses. And you've started to see not only uh, uh, employment in manufacturing slow and, and it actually turns slightly negative, but you're even seeing indicators of future manufacturing activity soften as well. So future orders, things like that, are starting to come in just a little bit. And when we talk to businesses, particularly in manufacturing, and we ask them what's, what's behind all of this, they'll point to trade uncertainty. And I'll unpack that in a future chart and give you a sense of how, how the, the environment is, is affecting them. 
And then the yield spread, um, credit markets are, are, again, as I said before, a, a marketplace we watch closely and we've seen yield spreads come in quite a bit. What does that mean? It's very difficult for banks to make money in an environment where the short-term rates are at or even above longer-term rates. Why? Because they borrow from us in the short-term through CDs and deposits, and they lend back to us in the long-term in the form of student loans, auto loans, consumer loans, whatever it might be. Anytime the interest rate they're borrowing from us is higher than the interest rate they can lend it back to us at, they can't make money in that environment. So lending activity tends to slow and, and pull back. And we've had that situation occur uh, a few months ago where the yield curve actually inverted and we continue to watch that because that's usually not a very good portent of, of economic activity to come. In fact, that's part of the reason why you've seen the Federal Open Market Committee cut rates three times in their last three meetings, uh, including the one uh, earlier this week, uh, is just sort of that backdrop. So even though we're in a Goldilocks zone, even though things look great in terms of our top line target numbers, uh, we're still seeing signs of uncertainty that has caused our policymakers to go ahead and, and loosen monetary policy and, and, and become a little more stimulative uh, to try to be proactive, to try to get in front of some of these issues perhaps that, that could slow the U.S. economy down. So now I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk, I'm going to thank you. Uh, I talked just a little bit about some of the longer-term trends that we can, are concerned about. And these are things that we don't necessarily have a monetary policy tool for, but are things that are going to affect the economy in the future and that, that we spend a lot of time at the Dallas Fed researching and trying to understand. First is globalization and trade. I think you all understand this issue pretty well here in the Valley. Um, globalization is not sucking jobs out of America like was being discussed in the 1990s during presidential elections. Some of you will recall that. Globalization is here, it's here to stay. It's an important part of how manufacturing stays competitive and efficient. In fact, we at the Dallas Fed would posit that the key to keeping the U.S. manufacturing sector competitive vis-a-vis -vis Europe and Asian competitors is to have good trading relations with Canada and Mexico because they're part of that industrial supply chain. For, for U.S. manufacturers. If we do not have good trade relations with Canada and Mexico, it's impossible for U.S. manufacturers to be competitive. So it's a competitiveness question for us. Um, so we continue to monitor this huge issue, but right now there's a lot of excess capacity in global supply chains, uh, which creates a disincentive, for, a disincentive for manufacturers to further expand and hire. And so that's a little bit of the dynamic that's going on in the manufacturing space and, and part of the reason things have slowed a little bit. Um, also, and, and that's a longer term trend that's going to take time to correct. Similarly, we have demographic trends, not only in the United States, but in Europe uh, and other parts of the world like Japan and China. Um, China had a one-child policy for 70 plus years. That's going to create a demographic issue where your society begins to age and you have fewer younger people to replace uh, the, the, the aging and retiring workforce. We see that here with the baby boom generation retiring in the United States. And what does it mean? It, it basically means, like Europe, like Japan, like China, in the United States, we are not having enough children, native-born children, to keep up with the number of people leaving the workforce uh, and retiring. We're barely keeping sort of uh, even. Uh, so we're not seeing the workforce growth that we need to to see the economy continue to grow. Second thing I would ask you to remember about my presentation today, again, if you remember nothing else, there are two things that grow the economy that cause growth in, in what we call GDP, gross domestic product. Growth in the workforce and growth in the productivity of the workforce. You here at South Texas College are working on the productivity of the workforce. You're giving 
students and, and, and folks who come to you the skills to be competitive and be more productive so that business and industry can be more productive. Um, but if the size of the workforce is not growing and we're completely dependent on productivity, then it's almost like fighting a boxing match with one arm tied behind your back. If we don't have workforce growth, it's going to be very difficult to have substantial growth in the U.S. economy. The demographic trends that we have today suggest that. And I'll get a little bit to that uh, in a future chart. And then lastly, one I alluded to earlier is technology-enabled disruption. This is a fascinating subject we're really beginning to do research on at the Dallas Fed. I've talked to you about this the last two years that I've been here, and it continues to become interesting. In fact, I'll give you some charts on it. But essentially what is happening here is we believe there's a two-step happening. That as new technology comes about and creates new opportunities for businesses to develop new business models, think of Uber, think of Amazon, uh, think of companies like that that are disrupting industries with new technologies and business models enabled by technology. That is, that is taking us two steps forward, if you will. But then the workers and the companies who are disrupted, um, those workers often don't find work uh, when they're displaced at an equal level of, of productivity or output that they left. They often downskill and find jobs producing less uh, per hour worked than, than they were doing before. And this is, a, this is the challenge, we believe, of the age because uh, we take two steps forward, but because of that dynamic, we're taking one step backwards. And so we've actually seen productivity in the United States be fairly stagnant. And we think this technology disruption is actually, believe it or not, causing that. What does that mean? It means we have to take those workers who are disrupted, whose jobs go away because of technology, not because of globalization that might have happened 20, 30 years ago, but because of technology. Uh, we have to have institutions like South Texas College help those workers reskill, upskill into better, more productive jobs, not downskill. And this is a challenge that cannot be solved at a federal level. This is not a challenge that can even be solved at a state level. This has to be solved by communities. Communities have to get together with industry uh, and academic institutions, particularly community colleges, uh, to figure out how to help workers who are being displaced by technology, help them learn new skills, learn new technologies. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see this uh, effect of two steps forward, one step back that I alluded to. So let me unpack a couple of those for you very quickly. Let's talk about trade. So this is a survey that we've done of Texas manufacturers. Um, and what we have learned is that when we look at the current uh, tariffs that have been put into place uh, over the last couple of years, um, what effect is that having both on manufacturers as well as service sector companies? You'll notice that manufacturers and service sector companies both report that their input costs have gone up as a, as a direct result of tariffs. That means the things they're sourcing from places like China and Europe uh, or Canada or other places have gone up in cost. Well, that makes sense because there's now a tariff on top of those things. Uh, however, you'll note that their ability to pass those costs on in the form of their final prices to their customers, their selling prices, which is the second one here, while they've gone up, they've not gone up as much. And so if you go all the way to the far right and look at profit margins, it's no surprise that if your input costs are growing faster than your selling prices, your profit margins are going to slide. Uh, and you've seen that not only in manufacturing, but you've seen it in the service sector. And I want to emphasize that because a lot of the headlines, a lot of the discussion on TV and in the, in the print media and online media is around the manufacturing space and the effect that the tariffs are having on manufacturers. It's well documented. 
But it's not well documented that it's also having a similar effect on service companies. So that's something uh, to, to, to know. The effect of all of that, you see it in the, in the, in the three uh, uh, columns in the middle, is the, 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 the behavior of, of these businesses, both manufacturers and service sector companies, is what worries us at the Dallas Fed. Uh, with production um, and revenue declining, uh, companies' plans to spend on capital to expand their, their companies is declining. Uh, and the outlook for these companies is declining. Well, when manufacturers and service sector companies don't feel confident enough to continue to expand their businesses, they actually start to pull back. That means less hiring, that means less capital and plant expenditures, that means less productivity gains because they're not investing in the technology and things that would, would drive those productivity gains. It gives us concern at the Dallas Fed for the outlook. This is probably the single largest source of uncertainty right now not only in the U.S. economy, but in the European and Asian economies right now, is all this trade tension, all this trade uncertainty that's going on. Um, the good news is, at the Dallas Fed, I also run government relations for the Dallas Fed, and so I paid very close attention to these issues on Capitol Hill. And as I was telling, um, telling my, our hosts here earlier today, I actually, for the first time in a number of years, feel reasonably confident that the USMCA agreement can get through Congress. Uh, in fact, there seems to be an effort on both sides of the aisle to come together on this one issue, despite the climate of everything else going on. So I, I'm actually optimistic. I would not have told you that two months ago um, because of the political environment, but I feel pretty optimistic this might have a chance. That obviously would be a huge win for the U.S. economy uh, and for the U.S. manufacturing sector, an even bigger win for, for, for the state of Texas. Uh, and an even bigger yet win for the city of McAllen. So I, I think it's, it stands obvious. But know this, know that the Dallas Fed, as we talk to lawmakers, we're showing this information to them. We're, we're explaining to our Texas members uh, on Capitol Hill what trade means to this economy here, how important it is. They all know it, but it's nice to have the data to back it up. And so we're doing our part to, to demonstrate to them the importance of, of this issue to our economy. Um, as we look at the participate, as, as we look at the labor force, the demographics issue that I talked about, you'll notice this red line here is the, the potential uh, rate of participation in the economy, as estimated by the Congressional Budget Office. And the black line is the actual participation rate, and you'll notice that during the recession and, and the wake of the recession, that the number of people participating in the workforce was below the potential level, as estimated by the CBO. But you'll notice that red line is declining. What does that mean? It means that the expectation is we will have fewer people as a percentage of total population actually in the workforce as the society continues to age. Uh, this is the baby boom. This is the baby boom retiring. This was, and this has been a known factor. So this is not you know, political or anything else. This is just basic demographics. Um, the bottom line is we're just not having enough children, uh, as is Japan as did China for a long time, and as is Europe. And so you see similar demographic declines in all of those parts of the world as well. That bodes for potential slower growth ahead for all of those economies. Uh, also, one of the spaces that was driving workforce growth in the U.S. economy was the increase in the female participation in, in, the, in the workforce. As measured against their male peers, um, Starting back in the, in the 1970s, you had less than 60 women in the workforce for every 100 men. And as you can see, over the number of decades, the female participation rate vis-a-vis -vis the male participation rate began to incline. So we were getting a boost from more women entering the workforce. 
uh, and that was driving our, our workforce growth. Again, one of the two things that drives the economy, workforce growth, productivity. However, after the recession, that has plateaued. We're not sure if this is a new normal, if this is just sort of the new equilibrium and this is where we're going to end up, or whether we'll, we'll start to see it pick back up again and get closer to maybe one for one. Uh, but right now, we've seen that. Now, before any of the ladies in the room think I'm blaming women for the slowdown in, in, in the workforce growth, I'm not. I'm simply putting out the facts that we've seen to, that that source of growth uh, for the workforce has begun to, to, to slow as well uh, as the overall growth rate. So one of the solutions you're probably wondering about in your head is, well, one way to grow the workforce if we're not having enough native-born children is immigration. Now, I want to be careful. The Dallas Fed is not going to get into the immigration debate. We're not going to take a political side on what's the right immigration policy or the, the wrong immigration policy. But what we are going to do, thanks to the work of Pierre Arrhenius, one of our uh, research economists who focuses on the economics of immigration along with the Pew Research Center, is tell you the facts about the workforce and how it's growing and what the composition of that growth is, looks like. And this is fascinating. This is my favorite chart in this entire presentation because this really tells a big story. You'll, no you'll notice that the overall growth in the workforce kind of peaked in the 70s and 80s, 1975 to 85, so that the bar is the highest at that point. And you'll notice that that bar has been steadily declining. This, this supports what I showed to you earlier, which is the overall workforce growth in the United States is slowing because of these demographic trends. But you'll also notice the composition of the growth in the workforce has shifted. In the first couple of decades on this chart, depicted in blue, almost all of the growth in the workforce was from domestic-born, native-born uh, uh, people. But over the further decades, including uh, 1995 to 2005, that began to shift to where now, uh, in 2005 to 15, the most recent decade, the majority, over two-thirds of the growth in the U.S. workforce were either immigrants, depicted in red, or children of immigrants pr pr uh, projected here in, in tan. If you fast forward and look at the projections over the next two decades, you'll see that not only will we still be dependent on immigrants and children of immigrants for workforce growth, we will be completely dependent on immigrants and children of immigrants for any growth. The contribution by native born will actually be a net negative, a drag if you will. Again, we're not having the 2.1 children per couple. You have to average just to keep flat, just to keep things even. Uh, those are the demographic. This is not a political statement. This is just the facts. These are the demographic realities. Of course, these projections into the future assume no changes to immigration policy or stance. So it assumes that things stay the way they are today. That obviously could change, and that obviously could change the, 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 the bars that are here. I give this to you only because it's the facts, and we do try to share this as well with lawmakers uh, so they understand the economics of immigration are our real issue. And then talking about digital disruption, uh, or technology, I'm sorry, disruption, what we're seeing is that technology is displacing physical and, manu and manual skills and basic cognitive skills. We're replacing people with machines when it comes to these types of areas of work. But what we are seeing is an increase because of that in the need for higher cognitive skills, for social and emotional skills, and technological skills. So while we need less of people in the manual and, and, and physical and basic cognitive space. We need more people in these other categories. This is the shift happening as we speak, thanks to technology and the nature of the skill sets of the workforce. And this is where demand for skill sets 
and future workforce is going to come from is in these spaces. So what does that look like by industry? This is a, a slide put together by the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, they do great work. We, we cite them quite a lot at the Dallas Fed. Um, this is really fascinating. What this chart is showing you is, by industry, what percentage of the work done today by workers in that industry could be automated by existing technology today? In the manufacturing space, not surprising to you, especially given the, the, the types of training you're doing, doing here at South Texas College, about 58% of what uh, people employed in manufacturing today do on the assembly line can be automated with existing technology. So again, the fact that you're training students on robotics, on 3D printing, things like that, shows that you understand that dynamic in the manufacturing space and you're, you're moving in front of that. But even, even as you go down this line, you'll notice uh, some surprising ones. Even in the education space, at the bottom there, 25% of what teachers do in the classroom today can be automated. Now that doesn't mean teachers are going to be, become robots. It just means teachers are going to need different skill sets in the classroom in order to continue uh, uh, to, to, to keep up with the technology and, 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 the, and the enabling cap capability that top technology brings to the classroom or to finance or to information services, whatever the, the industry might be. This is really telling, but this really tells you where the future of the workforce is going in our country uh, and what industries are going to be most highly impacted uh, by, by technology and technology disruption. So let me fast forward and talk about the Texas economy. Um, uh, right now, the Texas leading uh, index is, is kind of flattened. We've seen a kind of slowing in, in energy prices, so that, that's had an effect. And of course, the trade uncertainties that I talked about before. Um, interestingly enough, an anecdote to that, we're all familiar with the trade spat with China, and that's gotten a lot of national headlines. But not only here in Texas, but across the country, when you talk to manufacturers, the thing that, that gave them the most uncertainty, the thing that kind of startled them the most, was the threat to raise tariffs on Mexico to try to get some action on immigration. You all remember this, right? It happened back in the spring. It never happened. It never occurred. The tariffs never went up. But the threat of it caused manufacturers to take a oh, time out. Hit the brake pedal for a minute here. You know, let's let's take a cautious look at this. That actually had a more palpable uh, effect on manufacturing than even the trade uh, uh, issues with China has had. Uh, just the psyche of that of that threat. Uh, so we continue to monitor that, and that's it's, it's certainly had a bit of an impact. Although it, it, uh, the outlook still remains positive, it's definitely slowed quite a bit, as you can see over the last uh, year or so. As we look at manufacturing uh, here in the Texas region. Uh, you'll notice that the volume of new orders has actually declined a little bit. Um, however, uh, production continues to be positive, albeit slightly positive. Uh, don't worry too much about the fact that it dipped below this. As you can see, this data tends to be very noisy. It bounces around quite a bit, um, and it can go negative. We saw a period of negativity uh, in 14, 15, and 16. That was mainly driven by energy sector. A lot of manufacturing in Texas supports the energy sector. Um, uh, but what remains to be, we have to watch this uh, carefully to see if this continues to slide, uh, but we're watching it very carefully. But the bottom line is this uncertainty in manufacturing, primarily driven by trade uncertainty, is definitely seeing an effect here in Texas. So bottom line is, uh, you know, risks for a slowdown or recession are certainly higher than they were a year ago. Um, and we have to monitor that. That's why you've seen the Federal Open Market Committee reduce interest rates three times in a row now. Um, there's no doubt that tariffs are hurting uh, uh, manufacturers in, in particular, and they're, they're spending what we call capital expenditures. 
Uh, and I think at this point, the most significant forecast to our outlook would be sharp declines in oil prices, anything that would escalate trade tensions uh, or, of course, a recession. Uh, right now, the Texas economy is doing fairly well. We're growing a little above 2% in terms of total job growth. That's primarily because a lot of people are moving into Texas. We're still, we're still one of the two largest states for net in-migration from other states. Florida is the other top beneficiary. And about two-thirds of the states are, are actually exporting labor. They're losing labor. And Texas is one of those handful of states that's actually seeing a, a, a net increase. And so they're moving into places like Austin, Houston, Dallas, and, and other areas, and we're seeing that benefit of the Texas economy. So overall, things are pretty good. We're in a pretty nice Goldilocks space, um, but we still have issues that we have to watch. This Real Grande Guardian special feature is one of a series of four podcasts from the 2019 Innovation Conference that focused on changes in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Real Grande Guardian International News Service.